Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. Sunday. Um, glad you're here. Um, yeah, hope it was a good weekend. I hope it's been a good Sunday so far. Um, super excited to be up here this morning. Um, hey, just want to open this way. My name is Zach. Um, if we haven't met yet, I'm on Christ Chapel staff um, and I'm PAC staff specifically. Um, and so Lexi mentioned this and I love what she said and I just want to kind of expand. The PAC gets excited about training um, their leaders, our leaders, to introduce people to Jesus. And so as you might expect, I get really excited when I get to talk about Jesus and introduce people to him. And I um, also want to say this, Jesus has absolutely changed my life. He has taken me from a dead and dark place, and he's made me a new creation. Um, and so I get really excited thinking about all of y'all and what Jesus has done in your life and what he will continue to do in your life. Um, and that is my aim, my goal this morning. Um, I want to talk about Jesus, and I want to introduce you to him, um, and maybe that means introducing you to um, a deeper relationship with him. So that's my goal. Um, we're going to be in Second Samuel this morning, Second Samuel chapter 9 specifically. Um, so you can start flipping there now. Um, and I really do want you to flip there. If you've got a Bible, um, start flipping there. And if you don't have one, we've got some in the back of the room. Um, and if you don't have a Bible at all, that one in the back is for you to keep. Um, so yeah, start flipping 2 Samuel chapter 9. And while you're flipping there, I want to open with a story. So um, it was freshman year. I did my freshman year at Purdue University in Indiana before transferring to TCU. Um, and it was maybe a month into the semester um, where this guy named Ethan Hall sat me down. Um, and it was the first time someone had explicitly shared the gospel with me, um, explicitly shared the good news of the Bible and the good news of Jesus. Um, and we were actually on a walk, and Ethan was talking to me. He was talking to me about Jesus and the Bible and God. And I knew all the things that he was saying, right? I had grown up in church, and so I knew all the things that he was saying. Um, and then we stopped, and I can picture it so clearly. We were um, at a bench behind my freshman dorm. Um, and, we sit, and we stopped and we sat down and Ethan started to ask me about my relationship with God. And he asked me, what, are the, what is the percentage, what are the odds that you think you're going to heaven? And I said, I don't know, maybe like 75%. Um, yeah. And it, so he, he said something that I will never forget. He said, you are either in communion, in a relationship with God, or you are in active rebellion against him. There is no neutral. There is no 75%. It's either zero or 100. And he went on to tell me that this was true for every single one of us. There is no middle ground. There is no neutral. I left that conversation with Ethan trying as hard as I could to deny, to disprove, to disregard what he had told me. Um, right? That seems a little extreme. That seems a little harsh, right? So I started asking people and I started reading um, and what I found in the Bible was that it was true 
there was a decision posed to every single one of us to be in friendship with God or in active rebellion against him. And then I came across Jesus' words in Matthew 7. He says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. There are going to be many who thought they were good, and I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. That tension is where I want to camp out this morning. How do I know that Jesus isn't going to say to me, I never knew you? How do I know I have a relationship with Jesus? How do I know that I truly understand who he is and what he's done? Let me say that again. How do I truly understand, how do I truly know I understand what, who he is and what he's done? My aim for this morning is to show you through 2 Samuel chapter 9 that God desires and has designed us to be in a relationship, in communion with him. Um, so I feel like I can always track best with the sermon if I know where we're going. So just want to give you a brief roadmap. Um, want to start in the text and start to pull it apart, see where God is in it. And then I want to make three arguments to you of what I think um, a relationship with God looks like. So, um, yeah, before we jump into the text, I also want to kind of set the scene, um, summarize where we've been so far. I think it's important to remember that, uh, or to tell you all that at Christ Chapel, um, if you're new here, we teach through books of the Bible. So in first, this first semester, we were going through 1 Samuel, and now in the second semester, we've been working our way through 2 Samuel. Um, and so I also want to say this. I am about to vastly oversimplify some things here. I would encourage you to go back and remind yourself of what First and Second Samuel has looked like so far. Um, this is just a crash course. Again, very much oversimplifying. Um, but First and Second Samuel is really the story of two different Israelite kings. Um, in the beginning um, of this First Samuel book, we see God raise up Saul to be king of the Israelites. And to put it nicely, um, Saul was not a very good king. Uh, he disobeyed God in a lot of ways. And while he was still king, we see God start to raise up someone to replace him, David. Uh, there's this massive power struggle that happens at the end of 1 Samuel, um, which mostly looks like David having the opportunity to kill Saul a bunch of different times and choosing not to. Um, but at the end of it, we see Saul and all of his sons die in battle, and David becomes king of God's people. So that's the summary. That's kind of the scene. Let's jump into chapter 9. This is verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Meshir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Meshir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, 
What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. All right, what's going on here? What we see in chapter 9 is King David seeking out a direct descendant of his predecessor Saul. Um, I love what it says in verse 3. Um, if you underline or mark up your Bibles, I would definitely uh, recommend underlining the phrase in verse 3, um, that I may show the kindness of God to him. That I may show the kindness of God to him. David did this, um, inviting Mephibosheth in, so that he could show God's kindness to Saul's grandson. Um, now, this is not at all what we would have expected, right? As a passive observer, if we're looking at these, this biblical time, what we would have expected is that when a new king took the throne, one of the very first things he would have done was completely decimate, completely wipe out the previous royal family so that there was no threat to the throne. David does the exact opposite, right? And I mean, think about how crazy, think about how crazy this is. Um, it's, like, it's like Black Panther inviting Michael B. Jordan to be part of the royal family, right? Some of you got it, we'll move on. Um, Right? The point is this. It is crazy. It is ridiculous. So why does he do it? I want to go back to verse 3. David's motivation in inviting Mephibosheth to the table is to show God's kindness. And this goes all the way back to a covenant that Jonathan and David had made in 1 Samuel. Um, Saul's son is Jonathan, and Jonathan helped David escape Saul. Um, and this is, um, I want to put it on the screen, 1 Samuel 20. This is Jonathan talking. But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord so do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house, from my descendants, right, from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. David is looking back and remembering the Lord's provision and the Lord's kindness through Jonathan. And wants to repay that kindness and show off the kindness of the Lord to his, uh, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Um, and take a moment to think about Mephibosheth, right? This boy would have grown up as a prince in his grandfather's castle. And then in one day, everything is swept out from under him. His dad is killed, his, grandpa, his grandpa's killed, and all of his uncles. And he has, he's forced to flee. He's forced to go into hiding. Um, we know from earlier in 2 Samuel, there's a 
a brief paragraph that mentions that Mephibosheth is lame in his feet because he was dropped by his nurse as they were scrambling to flee. Um, so Mephibosheth is on the run. He's in hiding, fearing for his life. He's at the end of a defeated dynasty. He's crippled because of a fall. And this new king says that he wants him to come. He hears that this new king wants to speak to him. Um, look at verse 8. It makes sense that he calls himself a dead dog, right? It makes sense. If you look at his life, why would the king want to speak to me? Here's where I want to pause and take a step back um, and almost shift the lens through which we've been viewing the scripture. Um, I think it would be really convenient and really easy and clear and concise to simply say that the point of this passage is to be more like David, right? That we should see what David did, how he welcomed in the outcast, how he welcomed in the outsider, and that we should do the same thing. I think that would be really easy um, to say. But um, I think that those things that David does are, are good and that we should strive towards them, but I don't, I want to propose to you that there's a bigger picture going on here. I want to propose to you that this story is not in the Bible so that we would be more like David, but instead that we would see ourselves more like Mephibosheth. This story is in the Bible so that we would see ourselves more like Mephibosheth. We see David inviting Mephibosheth in as a shadow, as a glimpse of what Jesus has done for us. And if we're being honest, we are in a much worse off place in our initial relationship with God than Mephibosheth is with Jonathan. Oh, David. Here's the reality. We are all eternally separated from the God of the universe. In the beginning, God created everything and it was perfect. And in the garden, humanity rebelled and every human since then has rebelled by choosing the world over God. We choose the world instead of God every single day and in so many different ways. And that rebellion has not only created a distance, a separation from God, but that rebellion has also destroyed God's plan for human flourishing. We have ended up in some low, low, dark places. We continually choose to live life the way that we see fit, the way that we think is best, instead of living it to what God has designed. And this is what's beautiful. This is what's beautiful. We were the ones that rebelled. We were the ones that said, no, thank you, God. And while we were rebelling, while we were separated, while we were saying no, while we were in our brokenness, that's when God sent his son, Jesus. He to call us back into a relationship with him. God sent his son to call us back into a relationship with him. Think about the story of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was in a low desolate, seemingly hopeless place. His whole life had been swept out from under him. And you can imagine, he has no idea how he's going to get out of it. And then David says to him, come, come sit at my table. Come sit at my table with me. That is what God has done for you. That is what God has done for you. Come sit at the table with me. Um, if you were to ask, I would bet, if you were to ask a room full of people, where have you seen God move? Where have you seen God show up? Where have you felt close to God? I would be willing to bet that nine times out of ten, 
someone would say, when I was at my lowest, that's when God met me. When I was at my lowest, when it seemed hopeless, that's where I saw God move in my life. That's where he showed up. That's where he called me in. He calls us in and he says, man, I know you've got some stuff. I know where you've been. I know what you've done. I don't care. I don't care about where you've been. I want you as you are right now to come and do life with me. And I know you got some things. I know you got some things that you got to work on. Um, I know you want to change your desires. We'll do that. But we'll do that together. Come sit at the table with me. Come. Come be in my presence. The rest of the sermon, uh, we're going to focus on three arguments around this idea of being at the table, sitting at the table. I just want to clarify what I mean by that. When I say sitting at the table, I mean being in his presence. Come sit at the table with me. Come be in my presence. Okay. Hopefully we see ourselves rightly in the story of 2 Samuel. Um, I want to argue three things, like I mentioned. The first is this. You are invited to the table. You are invited to the table. You either have been or are actively being called by the God of the universe to sit at the table with him. And when I say you, I don't mean the collective you. I don't mean y'all. I mean you. Individually. You. And this invitation is not just an individual one. It's a personal one. The God of the universe knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows everything you've done. He knows everything you will do. And he still says, yep, that's my son. That's my daughter. I want her. Get him in here. That's what God says to us. So let me ask you, are you sitting at the table? Are you sitting at the table? Have you said yes to the God of the universe? Have you given him your life? And are you sitting with him at the table? And I want to be really clear with what I'm asking here. I'm not asking if your parents were Christian. I'm not asking if you're friends with Christians. Uh, I'm not asking if you're in the Christian fraternity or the Christian sorority. I'm not even asking if you come to church on Sundays. I'm asking, have you said yes to the God of the universe individually? personally. And, and please, please hear my heart. Those things that I just mentioned are not bad things by any means. I just would encourage you, don't settle for the crumbs. If that's what you've settled for, I would just encourage you that there is so much more available to you if you would just reach out and grab it. You are invited to the table. Have you accepted the invitation? The second thing I want to argue is this. Um, not only are you invited to the table, but you are designed to stay at the table. If you've got your Bibles open, um, we'd love for you to look back at verse 13 with me. Um, and there's that word always in verse 13. I would argue um, a better translation from the Greek word um, instead of always would be like repeatedly or, or continuously, maybe. Um, so let's read verse 13 with that word. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate continuously at the king's table. And that makes sense, right? 
this dude had been invited to live in the castle and eat with the king, why would he not spend every single meal at the king's table? Why would he not take every opportunity to eat at the king's table? Guys, it's the same exact thing for us. Jesus did not call us into a one-time transaction. He called us into a continuous relationship. In the same way, the Bible is not an instruction manual on salvation. It is the continuous guide to human flourishing in a relationship with God. A verse we throw around a lot here is John 10.10. We'll put it on the screen. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus, I, came that they, you and I, may have life and life abundant. See, what Jesus has for us is a quality of life so much greater than what we could even comprehend. And he makes it very clear that this life is only available through him, right? Apart from him, apart from the table, there is no true joy. There is no true life. I want to camp out here um, and just briefly cover two ways that I think we are pulled away from the table. Um, the first is this. Um, the first way we're pulled away from the table is just otherworldly offers. Otherworldly offers. Um, we are constantly be tol- being told the lie, um, being sold that there are worldly things out there that will bring us happiness or security or value or power. Think about the answers to these questions. How do you have fun in college? How, how do you be happy in college? How do you set yourself up for a secure future? When you come across these worldly offers, I would just encourage you to remember where your worth comes from. Your joy is not found if you fit into this friend group, um, and your security is not found if you've gotten into this organization or in this internship uh, to set yourself up for a good future. Man, if we have any hope if we have any hope in distinguishing the fake offers of life from the real ones, it's going to take us continually sitting at the king's table, reminding us constantly of the promises that he has and that life with him is the only offer of true life. At the table, when you've said yes to Jesus, you also have the conquering power of the Holy Spirit. You also have the conquering power of the Holy Spirit. Something I like to remind myself um, is with the power, with the conquering power of the Holy Spirit, um, the last time I did X, whatever it might be, could be the last time I ever did. If I'm serious about Jesus dying on the cross and in his death on the cross, he purchases a relationship with me, with the Father and me, and I now have the Holy Spirit, I have to be serious about the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome the things that used to enslave me. That power is available when we continuously sit at the table. And I'm not saying that rooting out these things that enslave me are going to be easy. But I am saying that it's going to be worth it. And it's going to be better. So, if we're mindful of other worldly offers and doing our best to reject them, I think there's still another way that we're pulled away from the table. Um, And it's not from without, but it's from within. Right? Our own thoughts. Um, Something I think I can resonate with a lot is this feeling of passivity, um, right? I think I look around sometimes, and my relationship with the Lord is good. Um, We're super tight, plugged in, um, and then just like that, it's like two weeks, and I haven't touched my Bible. Uh, I think that that is one way that I feel I get pulled away from the table. Um, Another way is this. Maybe you find yourself at the end of those two weeks, um, or even longer, of of a time running from God. 
in that moment, it's so easy to believe, man, God doesn't want me like this. God doesn't want me like this. I need to clean myself up. I need to be more presentable before um, I go to church or read my Bible or, pr- or pray to him. Uh, maybe using the analogy of 2 Samuel chapter 9, I might say I need to fix my diet before I go back to the table. I hope you hear how backward that logic sounds. I hope you hear how backward that logic sounds. Why would I try and fix my diet by eating good things before going to the table where the best food is found? Why would I try and clean myself up before going to Jesus who makes all things clean for his followers? Why would I do that before? Mephibosheth didn't look like royalty before he was sitting at the king's table. It was because he was sitting at the table that he looked like royalty. And there's some hard work that's going to happen if we're staying at the table. I don't want to pretend that when you say yes to Jesus, um, everything is great. And not that much changes, but life just gets better. Because that's not true. That's not true. What we see is that when we are continuously going back to the table, when we are continuously going back to our relationship with the Lord, we do start to change. We start to become more like Jesus. The things that we used to desire, we no longer desire. Um, we actively strive towards ho- this thing called holiness, the, the living out life the way God has designed. We continually surrender ourselves. We say that I am no longer on the throne of my life. It's him. It's him. And none of this happens passively either. We can't just sit back. We can't just sit back. That's why we have to actively strive towards continuously returning to the table. It doesn't happen on its own. We have to do this grace-fueled effort of returning to the table continuously. And when we do that, we aren't left the same. We are changed. And that change is hard, but it's for the better. So let me ask you again. Are you staying at the table? Are you staying at the table? Are you saying no to otherworldly offers and replacing them with the king's offer of a feast? Because there is not room for both. Are you in his word to remind you of his promises? Are you continuously reminding yourself of the finished work of Jesus on the cross? And are you doing your best to actively walk out what God has for you to the best of your ability? Are you surrounded by a community of people who is pushing you to the things of God? Let me say that again. Are you surrounded by a community of people who is pushing you to the things of God? You are designed to stay at the table. You are designed to stay at the table. Are you staying there? Okay. If you're sitting at the table and you're staying at the table, you're staying at the table with Jesus, um, there's one more argument that I want to make um, that I think we see from Second Samuel, Second Samuel chapter 9. Um, and that's this. You are called to invite others to the table. You are called to invite others to the table. And the reason I want to argue this is because it should be a natural outcome of doing the first two things, a natural outcome. I've said yes to Jesus, um, right? If I've said yes to him, if I've said yes and I'm sitting at his table and I'm experiencing the goodness of life, I'm experiencing that life with him is better, why would I not want to invite others into that? Why would I not want to invite others to experience life? If I look at my own life, I want those who I love to also be at the table. 
And so like I mentioned earlier, I love introducing people to Jesus and I'm calling them to the table. Um, I think there's two traps that we fall into, um, two reasons maybe that we don't um, invite others to sit at the table with us. Um, and the first is this, it's just straight up fear, right? Pretty self-explanatory, fear. Um, I wanna share a story from my own life. This was maybe two or three years ago. Um, it was New Year's Eve, we were sitting at, um, we were at my uncle's house and it was dinner time um, and we were waiting for dinner to be ready, it, sitting at the dinner table, ironically. Um, and they had this deck of cards, like conversation starter cards and the question posed to the table is um, what is the meaning of life? And I mean, guys, what an easy layup to talk about Jesus. What an easy layup to talk about how Jesus gives my life meaning, how he's changed my life and my relationship with him. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I'm sad that fear was the reason I couldn't talk about Jesus in such an easy moment. I look back at that time and I recognize I had fallen into a pattern of passivity like we talked about earlier. It was so hard for me to, to invite others to the table because I wasn't plugged into my own relationship. And so you may be thinking about this call to invite others to the table and you're afraid. And I think that's totally understandable. That is a real thing. I can relate with that. And let me caveat too by saying we never want to be a people that shove the gospel down someone's throat. We never want to shove the gospel on the people. I just think that if we are serious about how much we appreciate what Jesus has done, a natural byproduct is to share that with those around us. And that desire to share, I pray, would be greater than my fear of what would happen if I do. My desire to share would be greater than the fear of what would happen if I do. Another trap we fall into um, when we think about sharing with others, calling others to the table, um, is self-righteousness. And what I mean by that is, uh, well, let me say it this way. Picture yourself, you're before Sunday morning service or Sunday evening, if that's your jam usually, um, and you're vibing with your crew, um, waiting for the service to start, and someone walks in. And you think to yourself, wait, he's here? Wait, she's here? I know what he was doing last night. I know what she was doing last night. What are they doing here? Guys, what's going on in my brain when I'm thinking about that? That is my self-righteousness on display. I think in some way that I've earned a spot at the table, that I've earned my presence with the Lord. I remember this was early on in, in college. I could not comprehend how someone could party or get drunk or get high. I, I could not comprehend it. But literally, my thought was, just don't do that. Like, don't you see, you know? And this is, this is the worst part. While I was judging others for their sin that was on display that I could see, while I was judging others for their sin, I was just enslaved to a pornography addiction. And for some reason, I thought that my sin wasn't that bad. That my sin didn't separate me from God as much because it was hidden, because no one knew about it, because it didn't really affect anyone. What lies 
What lies from the enemy to think that my sin separates me less? All sin separates us from God. All sin separates us, and none of us have done anything to earn a spot at the table. I pray that we wouldn't be afraid and that we wouldn't be self-righteous and that the goal we would strive for is instead the picture that we see in Luke 15. Luke 15 is the story of the prodigal son, and I wish we had time to go through it now. We just don't. But I would encourage you to go read Luke 15 and see the posture of the father. If I could summarize, the son is wandering, the son is lost, and he decides to come home. And the father sees him from a long way off and runs to him. He doesn't wait for him to get to the house. He doesn't wait for him to explain himself. He doesn't wait to see if he explains where he's been. He runs off and welcomes him in. That is the picture, actually, that we've built the Pax ministry off of. As I've been thinking about 2 Samuel chapter 9, as I've been thinking about it in my own life and praying over it, a prayer that I have is that I would be someone that says, come, come, look at this seat that I have saved for you. Come, this is the seat right here next to me and next to Jesus. This is the seat that I've saved for you. I pray that we would be a people that get excited at the seat that we've saved for others rather than keeping people from the table. And I also feel this burden to apologize if that hasn't been your experience. If you've been on the receiving end of harsh judgment, if you've experienced the hypocrisy of others, if you've been told that this place isn't for you, that you don't belong here, that there's not a seat, I just want to say I'm sorry. That's not how it's supposed to be. That's not how it's supposed to be. What we see from the story of 2 Samuel chapter 9 is that Mephibosheth is invited on no merit of his own. And it's the same exact thing for us. We have done nothing to earn our presence. And so if that is your experience, I just want to say I'm sorry. So let me ask you for a final time. Are you inviting others to the table? Are you inviting those around you, those close to you, to sit at the table and experience life with Jesus? Is your posture towards people around you, come join me, come look at this seat I've saved for you? I definitely want part of the application here to be start doing that. And if you, um, are, and if you are, I just want to encourage you to do that. But I think another um, aspect of, of this point I would want you to, to ask yourself is this. If you're not doing that, um, examine why. Why? Is it because you put it on the back burner? Is it because you've never heard that this is a call that Jesus puts on our life? Um, or maybe it's because you needed to be reminded of how good a life with him is. Or maybe, and this is the scariest but most exciting option. Maybe it's because you haven't actually taken advantage and has seen what a life surrendered to him sitting at his table might look like. Man, if that's you, please, 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 please do not leave this place without telling someone. We want to walk with you. We want to show you what a relationship with Jesus looks like. But even after the service, just find a friend. Tell them, I, I want that. I want that. You are called to invite others to the table, and you are called to have the heart of grace towards those you're invited. Here's how I want to close. Um, I want to remind us of where we've been. Second Samuel chapter 9 is the story of King David showing God's kindness to Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth. 
Mephibosheth was completely undeserving of this kindness, and David does it anyways because he's honoring a covenant he made with Jonathan. In the same way, God honors his promises to us through his son, Jesus. You and I, every single one of us, have been invited into that relationship, called into his presence, called to sit at the table. You are invited to sit at the table. To answer the question from earlier, how do I know that Jesus will say, I never knew you? I get to just say yes and rest in his promise because he is the one that has done it. I have done nothing. I just get to say yes and rest in that. You are invited to the table. You are designed to stay at the table and you are called to invite others to the table knowing that life is found with Jesus. Let me pray. God, um, you are good and we are undeserving. Uh, I am just humbled at looking at my own life and seeing all the ways that I have fallen short and you still say, I am your son. And I just pray that that would be um, the heart, posture of all of us, that we would see ourselves as sons and daughters of the king who have been pursued, um, who are still being pursued continuously. God, I pray that we would return continuously to the table, that we would see that life and life abundant is found in you and you alone. Lord, um, yeah, just pray that we would leave this place changed and that we would desire to look more like you. We love you. Amen.